Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who serve in its ranks. Today we're talking to Chris Lincoln-Jones and we'll be talking about Op Granby, better known as the First Gulf War and the deployment of the then 7-3 Sphinx Special OP battery to the desert when he was battery commander in 1991. To help listeners, it's important to know that the battery in the Royal Artillery is equivalent of a squadron or company in another army regiment, and it's normally 100 to 120 strong, but can be more. In our case, it consisted of two patrol troops, A and B, and each of these had six six-man patrols. However, due to the selection process, both troops were considerably undermanned and often four-man patrols were the norm. In support of this was an HQ troop consisting of a command and signals element, logistics staff, and a motor transport section of about 20 to 25 people. So even by conventional standards, it was a very small subunit. Importantly, we deployed in a dismounted role with no vehicles, and this will be important to our discussion later on. And as normal, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which will be Chris's choice of book, film, and luxury item. So we'll crack on now. So thanks for coming to the pod, Chris. And we'll start off with your military backstory leading up to Granby deployment. Well, it's um, quite quite long, 25 years of regular um, service. I uh, joined in 1975 in November, walked through the gates of Woolwich uh, as a potential officer. So I did six months of recruit training and potential officer training before being uh, commissioned in, I think it's so long ago, yeah, 1977 uh, at Sandhurst. Um, and from there, I went into 3rd Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, which was just splitting up, um, and I went down to Devizes. It was splitting up into anti-tank guided weapons, troops and batteries. And I commanded a troop of swing fire 
um, anti-tank rocket um, soldiers. So after Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but I do have to laugh because you're never known for your sartorial elegance. So how did you go down in an RHA regiment, which are sort of roughly equivalent to the guards and the and the sort of the the standards of dress and turnout? I I, I was just someone to laugh at, I think. Colin, <laughs> how I. Um, I was. I actually got the the job because I came um, top of the um, the course at, um, at Lark Hill at the um, the gunnery um, training uh, place on Salisbury Plain. Um, not through any um, great ability. I was just quite good at that sort of stuff. Um, I yeah. I was probably there for comedy value. <laughs> so on the turn it, it, it did give me a lot of airs and graces and it took a while for those to be knocked off <laughs> anyway after that i went to the training regiment um and commanded uh recruit troops and finally went back to my origin and i commanded the potential officers troop um selecting and training and then putting people forward for the regular commissions board um and out of that they uh, they let me go to two nine commander regiment. I'd kind of grown up a very small amount, uh, but got extremely fit and thought the commandos were uh, a good thing to go for. And I was selected unusually to go straight to one four eight commando battery, which were the uh, a small unit, very similar in structure to seven the seven three battery as it would later become. Um, that. Uh, sneak to shore and use the ship's guns to support the Marines as they um, land, did their beach landings. And so I did, and I say unusual because normally you had to be in the main regiment for a while before you could go to two nine, uh, to, to one for eight battery um, because one for eight battery had added the necessity to do P company pre parachute selection at Aldershot before you could join them. And I did the commando course, which was nine weeks, followed by um, immediately by P Company, which was a mad thing to do. And how my knees and back survived, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I then hopped out of that, jo- joined the battery. Um, I was eating raw meat by this um, stage as a, as a result of all that terrible physical um, ill treatment that I'd suffered. I had injured myself, so I did uh, special boat service cross-training because I was due to take over one of the two um, special forces facing uh, patrols in 148 Battery that supported the uh, SBS. All of us could do it, but two um, were trained to be capable of exiting submarines while they were still submerged. So I went off and um, after doing my parachute course, immediately went off to do the diving course at um, the Royal Engineers place in Marchwood. And and that's equally mad because all of these courses that you do, including our own selection, um, are, they're all attitude courses. So I got to the, the, the diving course and had to run around with a gas pipe on my shoulder and, and stuff like that. But the funny story is there, my reputation had preceded me for having done the things I had. And they used to make me run along on PT, dragging a small piece of telegraph pole with a rope around me because they said that I was so mad they didn't want me frightening the other students. So, um, <laughs> I came out of that, 
went to the Falklands and I became the sort of the cold weather uh, forward observer. So I was in Norway a lot, um, parachuting out about a week before most of the other troops did the, the exercise with the SF element, doing advanced force operations. So that was kind of the, the pedigree. I, I went to Belize, I think, once or twice, just so that I didn't um, get get too um, obsessed with uh, ice and snow. Um, so there, that really w- was the building blocks of my rather unique Walter Mitty cowboy life uh, that was that was that was to come. And it's a small world, isn't it? Because uh, I believe you took over from Willie McCracken, who uh, Jimmy Moore mentioned in his podcast about Longdon. And Jimmy was a naval gunfire officer. Sorry, not Jimmy. Uh, Willie was a naval gunfire officer, 148 Battery there. And he also had in his party a future member of the Special OP Troop, Titch. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's a small world, isn't it? It is a small world. And Willie was something of a – I mean, he was quite a legend. They were very, very big um, boots to, to fill – Within within the battery, he came became a good friend um, uh, after that, and uh, rather uniquely because because we both did some time in the uh, special observers. Willie and I were the only two people in the uh, army who had a special observers badge, wings, commando dagger, and the diving helmet on our uniforms and he sadly died uh, some years ago uh, and uh, when i left that was that was the end of that so um i so did willie sorry chris did, did willie i didn't realize willie mccracken had uh, an input into battery was he was he part of the original team that set the special ops up yes he, he was because of because of his um pedigree military cross um uh, operational experience he was he was part of that whole um i think part of the inception of it all, as, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and was granted the right to wear the pop black badge um, as, a, as a result of, of that when General Stone um, put together the criteria under, under which you could wear the badge. All right. And, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, I came out of one for eight battery and made one of the first adult decisions of my life, which was to try and become a little bit more conventional. It's very easy, particularly with a character like mine, to, to go completely off track uh, and try and do all the, um, the, the sort of the, the potted sports in the, um, in the army. So I went to a conventional um, battery up in Topcliffe, uh, joined six field batteries, a battery captain, what they call a BK, and, and actually there started to learn what the real um, – real army is the the battery had 155 millimeter uh, towed howitzers uh, the fh70 and that was a that was a real introduction in management of uh, of both men and vehicles at the time so that actually it did me an enormous amount of good and and set me up leadership wise i the battery commander left six months before I was due to go and six months before there was another appointment and I'd been out in Kenya and came back to be handed a set of majors crowns uh, somewhat earlier than um, one normally gets them and told to take over the battery so I had six month battery command which was also rather handy because it gives you a bit of an insight into that quite large leap from captain to major major in command 
to make a few mistakes. And the um, commanding officer at the time was something of a legend, a, a great um, gentleman officer who who had a sort of a, a quiet leadership that um, w- was a really, really good lesson. He became quite a mentor for me. I went off there from there to join um, the Commander Royal Artillery South's team down in Aldershot at first and then in Wilton. And that was my grounding in um, staff work and the, the importance of learning how if, you, if you're going to have any kind of proper military career, you've got to learn to be a bit of a bureaucrat. And uh, the, 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 um, the major there, I re- reverted back to captain to go there, and the, ma- but the major there who was in charge of me was an incredible, amazing scholar, Latin and Greek he'd done. He, he was a sort of a, what would have been called a natural philosopher in the 19th century. He taught me how to write, and I ended up with um, another good mentor in terms of the, that commander, Royal Artillery, who later became the director of Royal Artillery, which is critical because I did a six-month stint in between that um, bureaucrat's job and coming to um, 7-3 battery down at 2-9 Commando again, um, where um, I was not not spared the lash by a particularly harsh uh, commanding officer there. Um, and uh, that taught me that if you are if you are responsible for something as a in a command position, you're also accountable. So it was it were, it was a hard hard six months. But when I was selected to take the two troops from uh, three two regiment and and fifth regiment and join them into one and make what was then seven three battery. Um, I'd had a pretty good grounding. I still had a lot to learn, but I'd had a pretty good grounding by then. So I came across to Germany, and in September we all marched um, onto the square after um, a drill sergeant major from the guards had um, taken the shambles that were the two <laughs> drill and made and made them um, into something that could well walk if not march <laughs> to be fair we nearly broke it <laughs> that is very true um and we, we we marched on on the parade and we became a 7-3 special op battery um regarded with great suspicion by all the other uh, battery commanders in the garrison because nobody likes the word special if they don't have it in their own title um, so we had to keep our heads down a little bit, but not much. And I knew nothing about them. I was I was completely green. I'd had a, a little bit of um, chats with people about what happened, stay behind patrols. And you, you have to remember, I'm, at the time, we were in the era, era of Gorbachev and Glasnost. And so the first rumblings of there not being a Cold War was starting to take place um, at the time. But that well, was... I was going to ask you, Christopher, about when you when you were told you were going to get the command, what did you know about the unit itself? Um, no, I know that when I joined, I knew very little. I, I, knew, I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know it was in the orbit. I really didn't even know it was in the orbit. It had never crossed my sight line at all. Um, no. And I was chosen because I was not regarded as um, 
of the caliber to command a, a gun battery. My, my background, one of the mistakes you make when you pursue the funnies is um, you, you can price yourself out of the market for, for some things. And I was regarded as a little bit of a loose cannon on deck, as you all know. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's interesting you say that, Chris, because I, I spent most of my career, first 11 or 12 years in, in the Special OP troop and, and the then Special OP battery. And then when I got promoted to warrant officer and I made my, my way across a conventional battery, I had severe gaps in my knowledge. It really bit me. Yeah. Uh, it's quite scary, actually, how much lack of knowledge you had about conventional batteries. That's, that's very true. And, and in hindsight, that decision to ask to go to a line field regiment as a battery captain was probably the best one I made. Uh, and then I had luck by getting some command appointments before I really um, either uh, earned them or deserved them. Uh, so when I and uh, with the the grounding that I got from two nine commander, particularly as headquarters battery, meant I was aware of many of the pitfalls. But I came completely ignorant, and the you know I was told, "Oh, you're off off to the fraggles." Didn't really know what that referred to. And so I spent that first month or so learning about the quality of the people, which really, when you, when you compared what I'd been given against what was surrounding me in the garrison, it soon became very, very um, apparent that there was a, a, a capability above and beyond. And, and I would have to say that that doesn't actually make it easy for a commander to come in, particularly one who hasn't done the course or anything like that. I was very aware that there was a frisson, despite all the mad things I'd done, not, not doing it. It is a truism that the higher the caliber of the soldiers, the more leadership challenges you get. It's very easy to, to command TikTok soldiers who just do what they're told. The um, JFDI system of management doesn't work quite as well when you get up to um, you know, special forces and specialist forces. JFDI just flipping do it. I think I, I sympathise with that because I think I, I conclude myself in this. I'd have been a nightmare back then. We we're all very young, very confident, very sure of our capabilities, and very unforgiving of people that couldn't match that. So mm. any officer, warrant officer, whatever, in charge of us had to have a strength of character that would that JFDs you refer to. Because I can see where you're coming from there, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then. To now, to get to the real point of this, in September, having learned a bit, I wanted to see it all happen. And off we went up to northern Germany um, for the first exercise together and my first um, chance to see what the operational capability of the battery was all about. And to see um, these men disappear underground and live there for uh, a long time, um, the camouflage skills and the, the, the basic soldiering skills, I started to realize that even with one great battery, I hadn't met people quite as professional as this. And a little bit of that is the, I, I never felt that the special observer course, which I was already looking at critically at the time, 
I never felt the course was the same as either P Company or the Commando course, which didn't require brains to do particularly. It was very obvious that the caliber of men that I had in the battery, um, they required to be thinking soldiers as as well as um, fit ones. Very, very fit. But the yeah the the ability to use initiative and to to think for themselves very very apparent indeed. Um, so I was I really I was starting to revel in it a little bit, and then I was called back all the way down to our garrison in Dortmund to um, speak to the brigade commander um, of the artillery brigade to whom we really belonged and was told that um, they had decided to deploy the battery onto Operation Granby, which was to be the first Gulf War. And that really, really completely threw me. Um, we'd seen this happening. The brigade had uh, that they decided to add to the Americans had gone out there. And I, I, I stood aghast as they said, right, this is going to be a division, uh, and you're going. and the brigade commander and the, the colonel, um, his second in command, who, who became very much our our champion, they said that we have to get you out there. They they had already seen the writing on the wall for various artillery units and the shrinkage that was coming, and they didn't want to lose the capability. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but it soon became apparent to me over the course of the next months but what to do there was this difficulty we were going to face as to how you take people who are used to living underground for a month uh, and turn them into mobile um, soldiers in a in a armored uh, division uh, which was going to be attacking we were always going to be defending and Rupert Smith the, um, the general, when we started to do the learning process before going out there, he was very, very um, open about the fact he was taking mostly Soviet tactics. So what we were facing, what our enemy at the time was, he was going to take them and turn them around um, and, ta- and take that to the desert. Huge change in everybody's thinking. So there was a lot of... Um, discussion of tactics and during this time i'm thinking to myself with my very lightweight soldier head on because i'd not done a lot of armored warfare not not for for decades and so i i really it took me a while to grasp what was what was required here and because at first i thought well put us into land rovers and uh, and we can do our job from there i do like the idea of light forces because it doesn't tempt you to Put yourself in harm's way and you tend to get on with your job which is ferreting out the information but mm-hmm. that that didn't accord with the protection they wanted to give the soldiers who are going out there so we got 432 um, armored vehicles uh, basically <coughs> those boxes with um, tracks on that you'll remember uh, yeah and about just just for listeners might not know the 432 was probably i don't know 30, 35 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had come in, yes. Um, And and you also mentioned Chris's size, the divisional aspect of it. I think what I'll do is just get Kev just to cover an outline 
for people that are not familiar with Granby, just the lead up to it and this, uh, also give the size of the deployment. So, Kev, can you just cover that yeah, up, please? Yeah, before yeah. We so, continue with Chris? so, historically then, on the uh, 2nd of August 1990, the Iraqi forces, we might remember the TV for those who were born in those days. We're forgetting that we're quite old now. Well, Chris is. They <laughs> 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 um, invaded uh, Kuwait. And... International uh, condemnation was um, universal with diplomatic efforts. And that was, wasn't just in the, the Western countries. It was also in the Arab countries as well. And uh, the United States and 35 coalition partners began a military effort to first deter further military action from the um, uh, Iraqis against countries such as Saudi. And then later was to go into Saudi and then to e- eject the Iraqi forces from Kuwait um, by force uh, and by the 15th of January 1991 it was clear that diplomacy had failed and that uh, a, a military operation was called upon and the largest single deployment since the second war and people forget this that actually BOR we had you know, I think we had 55,000 British army in BOR never mind the RAF and all the rest of it as part of those initial forces they deployed a division, the 1st Armoured Division, under General Sir Rupert Smith with two brigades, 7th and 4th. And it was over 40,000 British forces initially deployed. And this was obviously post the Cold War. It was BAUR equipment and tactics. And, and this was also before the options for change was coming in in 91, which was obviously the restructure of the armed forces. And this is... Commenced by a huge Allied air offensive on the 16th of January and then the launch of what was then called Operation Desert Sabre, the American phase, uh, the American operational name for the ground war on the 24th of February 1991. And the British forces would advance over 180 miles in 66 hours and they destroyed the equivalent of three Iraqi armoured divisions, which is a huge amount of equipment and, and, and forces and captured over 7,000 prisoners. And in one instance, an example was the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards destroyed an Iraqi tank at three miles. So the equipment we had for the Cold War was, was significantly better than the Iraqis, but they had superior numbers. They knew the ground, and they were fighting a defensive operation. While, as Chris mentions, we were going to do an offensive, which is something the British Army hadn't rehearsed for. They rehearsed for that collapsing bag, in Western Germany, waiting for the reinforcements from UKLF, from the Americans, the French, and all our NATO colleagues, uh, uh, military colleagues, to come in behind us to stop the Soviet Union, the Western group of forces. But what what I did pick up on was um, the Royal Navy made a significant um, contribution to the Allied efforts, and I never realised this, that the the Navy helicopters were responsible for the destruction of a huge amount of uh, vessels of the Iraqi Navy, something like a third of their vessels. Never knew this because everyone focused on the ground and air war more than the the uh, the maritime piece. And the conflict ended on the 28th of February, 1991. It was short, sharp, but extremely successful. But the numbers of Iraqi uh, troops and equipment that was destroyed, I mean, we all seen the footage of the the, the road was strewn with the Iraqi equipment. It was a, a massive operation in comparison to 
anything we've done since probably Second World War, stroke career. Yeah. So, Chris, you were, you were called up to the brigade headquarters and uh, you were given that brief. So you you then had to go back and work out the thorny issue of an order of battle or ORBAT, which is a, the men and material you could take with you on this operation. That must have been quite a difficult moment. It was when it started to get um, emotionally difficult and command started to become a much more lonely place. <clears throat> command is a, a fairly lonely place anyway, um, particularly if you are a, a battery like ours was, which was se- separate in role from the um, from the rest of the regiment. Now we were we were attached to three two heavy <clears throat> regiment Royal Artillery, which had eight inch howitzers. Um, it was commanded by a very forthright uh, Northerner, Yorkshireman. Um, who was a, a tough cookie, and that was that was good. He, and so we we were given to him, but our training still tended to be rather rather separate. So I had to form this orbat. It became um, known that we were going to be attached to the Sixteenth Fifth Lancers to become part of the Sixteenth Fifth Lancers group, which. Uh, were going to be the divisional recce regiment, and they were going to take the Queen's Dragoon Guard squadron that was already out there under their wing, and we were going to push out in front of the our division to do surveillance, target acquisition, and reconnaissance. Um, the 16th Fifth Lancers were in uh, Spartan and Scimitar, the what are called combat vehicle reconnaissance. Uh, tracked vehicles, about sort of six, seven, eight ton um, aluminium armoured vehicles. And I'll tell you a little story about that a, a bit later. And and this was the first time that I started to realise there was a little bit of a mismatch. We were slower than these vehicles, or so we thought at the time, uh, and bigger, and we were different. Um, the, the those, those vehicles, their vehicles, all drove on petrol, we drove on diesel. Um, so a little bit of a mismatch there. We were slightly strange. They had no idea what we did. And um, we, were, we weren't sure what we were going to do, what, um, what static patrols, even on mobile platforms, were, were going to be able to do. And I was told that we were only going to be able to take uh, five patrols out um, of four instead of the sixes that... Uh, so that meant a lot of these highly professional and keen troops were going to be left behind. And so I started to make myself extremely unpopular by trying to smuggle as many of the people in the battery out as I could. I got a bit of luck because there weren't enough forward air controllers <clears throat> to direct the um, huge amount of air cover we were going to get to attack ground targets. So the, the, the bombers, um, the A-10, Thunderbolt, um, gun aircraft, um, we didn't, because we historically we didn't have very many um, forward air controllers. So I was able to get two of the, our officers trained as um, forward air control parties. Um, we increased the number of people available to the uh, gunner battery commander 
who because um, they not only had us as 7.3 battery, but they also had a gun battery as well. And so there were forward observation officers to direct the guns. And there was a battery commander who immediately came a little bit into conflict as me as he he felt that as he was the head of all um, combat support forces, he should be in charge, which rankled with me a bit. But I managed to keep reasonably quiet about that. And we we were almost still wondering what we were going to do as the time to go approached. We lost our vehicles. They went on to stuffed ships taken up from trade um, to be carried out there. And I got quite a few of our people to go to act as escorts so they could at least feel they'd taken part in, in the war. But there was, a, there was quite a lot of um, rancor at the time at the fact that people would be left behind. That was, yeah, I was, yeah. So sorry, Chris. That's a very interesting point. That and it did. It's just to people listening, it'll be like, "Ah, oh, so what?" But I don't think people understand that young soldiers want to go and be tested. It's what they train for, and they want to go and be tested. And I remember there's a couple of guys in tears at being left behind, uh, literally in tears. Grown men, highly motivated, in tears at being left behind. And but we very much got the sense that you're doing your best to get people out of there and every way, shape or form. I was fortunate enough to be put down in one of the patrols, but I remember it was never guaranteed. It seemed to be, get, you know, where we're going, we weren't. We're going, we're not. And I remember I sat in my room just before Christmas and Matt, one of the troop commanders, popped his head in the door and goes, who wants to go down to the Gulf on a ship? Uh, we're leaving tomorrow. Grab all your kit. Meet me outside the door uh, at, you know, 10 hundred hours. And off we went. We had a great trip down. We managed to acquire a, a vehicle when we got there. We didn't know where you guys were. We knew we had to head to Blackadder Camp in Saudi. And the captain of the LSL struck a Land Rover off the manifest, gave us a Land Rover, filled it up with some crates of beer, and off we went looking for you guys in the middle of the desert. It was a bad hot deployment of the battery, I think. Yeah, it was, it, it was a little bit like that. Um, and... What was a real um, help was the battle casualty replacements. There was, an, there was a more or less an assumption that we could face the same type of casualties that we would have faced um, on the plains of Germany, because that's the only reference that people had. Uh, and so there was a large battle casualty replacement pool got together so that they could um, replace people who became casualties in the main fighting because no one knew how long it would go on for either. And so quite a lot of our guys got onto that and subsequently had a reasonably good time because many of the battle casualty replacements were called up to um, man the prisoner of war cages when the actual war took place. So it, it, it wasn't bad, but it was a, it was a introduction to me to some of the stresses and strains that I was going to um, face. But we got out there, and for a while, for quite a while, we were on on our feet. We put together the forward air controlling bit. Um, uh, we we did what training we could in the desert at Camp Blackadder. Um, but we were all really the whole um, division was uh, basically doing sand sandbox models in the desert as the senior officers talked to us, more junior officers, about what we were going to do, it became very, very um, plain that we were really going to do a, um, a number on the Iraqis. The, 
the UN resolution said eject them from Kuwait. Um, General Schwarzkopf took that to mean do a massive flanking maneuver through the Saudi into Iraqi desert, come in hit and hit Kuwait and southern Iraq in an, on a huge broad front. And that, when we were wargaming it, gave us a job because that left flank of our division was going to become an open flank. And that fell right into our hands because the 165th Lancers in their recce cars were very keen indeed to do wide sweeping casual cavalry maneuvers. And that left it for us to take hold of that left flank and guard the left flank of the division. And that's how that shaped up as we did our, our training um, before deploying. Our, our vehicles came off the ships and we got hold of those. They all broke down because they'd been stood around too long. And our poor old um, vehicle mechanics that we got, the three Remy guys, um, the electrical and mechanical engineers, um, spent all their time getting them working. And once they got them working, they pretty much worked throughout, which is the nice thing about those old diesel vehicles. They didn't break down once you got them running. In fact, I'm not sure. There are a couple of our vehicles that the engines didn't stop running from the time we crossed the um, Iraqi border until we turned off after the war had ended, and they just ran and ran and ran. Um, I was I was quite lucky. The the, the the wagon I was in didn't break down, didn't didn't throw a track, didn't break down. I mean, highly unusual for an armoured vehicle. And but I think for me as a I came from an air defence regiment, and then I went to the troop, dismounted, roll, walking around a foot. It was, it, it's hard to emphasize what an alien environment operating in an armored vehicle was for people like me, uh, especially one that was 35 years old. And you mentioned that the 165th Lancers had CVRTs, which were light, nimble vehicles designed for quick operations. But they also had a, was it a 30 millimeter rear, rear cannon? cannon? Yes. Yeah. And we had, uh, <laughs> we had general purpose machine guns, but they had no, Pintail mounts for them. So we managed to get some light machine gun LMG mounts and the Remy bodged them on with Jubilee clips. And we had to use surplus water bottle covers for putting the ammunition in, if you remember that. So it was a very much a, a Heath Robinson affair. But what I do remember is, unlike when I went back 10 years later on the first Optelic, there was no shortage of ammunition. We had 7.62 for the gun, up the yin-yang boxes and box of that. Plenty of ammunition for our rifles, which didn't work that well at the time, so it didn't really feel us with a lot of confidence. And boxes and boxes of plastic explosives for some reason. Done. <laughs> Tons of grenades, 94mm anti-tank weapons. The wagons were stored with ammunition. We, that was a, that was a um, an interesting one. Because of our, our war role in Germany, we got given all the stuff. Uh. For fighting war in Germany, and the plastic explosive was purely accidental because it was decided that if um, seven three battery wanted to blow huge holes in the German countryside, so they could then sit in them for a month, um, they needed explosives, and so that just the army being what it is, they just issued you with what they didn't think about what to issue you. They just issued you it, um, and I remember the ninety four. You needed two thumbs uh, on each hand 
and um, strong forefingers. It was a wacky um, rocket launcher. Very accurate, though. Very, very accurate. Um, and we we got our vehicles, but what I remember is getting very, very fed up with being scudded all the time. The scud rockets, <laughs> the scud rockets used to come across the top of Camp Blackadder most nights on their way somewhere else. But what would immediately happen is someone would press the alarm button on a chemical warfare alarm. And so there was this almost sort of 800, 900-man panic going on as this happened. We soon got very fed up with it. And I remember on one occasion I got very fed up with it. And being me, I thought, all right, I know a bit about nuclear, biological and chemical warfare. And so when the alarm went off, I put my respirator on and stayed in bed. And, <laughs> and most of us took our lead from you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and when the um, warrant officer first class came in and said, you should be in your um, NBC um, kit, he got this grumpy, re- grumpy muffled reply through a respirator is, you obviously have no idea about nerve gas because I'm in a tent. I don't need <laughs> to put an NBC suit on if I'm in a tent. Um, and uh, the CO of 3-2 Regiment the following day when this was all reported said, hmm, I, I think we, we should be a bit sensible here. And he very famously said, let's not all start dying before someone shoots us. <laughs> I like. But I resolved that the best way not to um, have to be disturbed by scuds coming across was not to be in Camp Blackadder. So I remember um, dreaming up a reason why we ought to go out into the desert on the Devil Dog Dragoon Range. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, and conduct um, our own training. And amazingly, nobody objected. And off we went. We formed our own little camp up uh, up on on the edge of the uh, range. Um, We didn't get bothered by um, chemical alerts because nobody was there to press a button on on an alarm, which made our lives much, much more pleasant. On a podcast a couple of months ago, we had Simon Vinny on. Uh, who you know well, Chris, and he talked about the absurdities of the army and the absurdities of war at times. And I remember our first casualty, we were down at the docks collecting the vehicles and we got a scud attack and everybody was diving for cover. And Bats, one of the lads, almost, well, I think he fractured his skull and scalped himself diving under a trailer. Yeah, yeah. 
and then we were all somebody said get in this ISO container this 40 foot ISO container so it was all these blokes crammed in this ISO container just laughing yeah. just the absurdity of it all there, there's an example of a man so upset by that um, accident that rendered him unfit for the rest of the war. I mean, that really, I've never seen a man quite so upset as having got out there and having to go back. Um, Anyway, we did our training and then we joined up with the 16th Lancers to train as a battle group and discovered a the least warlike cavalry that we'd ever met. And every time that the diplomat said, ah, oh, peace is going to break out on us, but I remember them all getting really elated and my battery getting all grumpy and miserable. And then when um, it said, no, 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 uh, the coalition will not stand for this and we're going to attack, we all got dead cheerful and they all started looking terribly po-faced. Now, <laughs> I was very unsympathetic to this, but then you know me, and I would be, wouldn't I? I, I, wanted, I wanted to be a battery commander who'd taken his boys to war. But And I'll, I'll jump ahead, because the, the six or seven, whatever it is, ton vehicle that these um, fellas were in, three, three uh, blokes in the crew... And it's an aluminium armour. And I remember being brought up short later on in the battle when an Iraqi tank fired its 12.7 millimetre machine gun up one of these vehicles. And two of the rounds um, from this machine gun went all the way through the tank. One passed just in front of the stomach of the two, the two uh, crewmen sitting in t- the turret and one passed underneath their seat. Um, so that, yeah. that was a – and after that, we re- realized that to all intents and purposes, these vehicles had Baco foil armor. So it wasn't all that surprising that they were a little bit hesitant about being shot at too much. Many of them behaved, of course, as you know, very courageously. I was an MC one by one of the 65th Lancers. But that against that background, we suddenly – got issued with our our salvation, and that was M-Star. Until then, I'll explain what it is, until then we were going to be watching the divisional flank through binoculars, but M-Star, medium surveillance and target acquisition radar, is I think what it stands for, a ground-mounted ground on, tri- on a tripod, I correct you both. I think it's man portable surveillance and target acquisition radar. Is it man portable? So <laughs> I'm not sure it's man portable. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, man I'm portable. sure the listeners will come back and tell us. Okay. Yeah. Someone will. Anyway, <laughs> this had a 24 kilometer range and could detect moving targets. Uh, although, when you give this. Um, piece of kit and it was the first time it had been deployed first time it had been deployed on operations as well and the battery made it its own this was something that the teams could really get to grips with and i was extremely proud when um in very short order the uh, our people managed to discover what this thing could do in that they even discovered stationary targets i well remember announcing at the divisional headquarters that we'd um, detected the forward arming and 
replenishment point of the aviation group, the um, the Lynxes with their tow missiles, the helicopters. And we detected them because the camouflage netting they were used wasn't tightly enough nailed down to the ground and it was moving in the wind. And the boys had found this and thought this is clutter and then saying, no, it isn't. There's something there. And directing the 16th Fifth Lancers during an exercise to go and investigate this. And they discovered the um, that there was a camp there. So we actually really got to know this piece of kit and it suddenly gave us a capability. And so when we went, we duly went across the, um, the, the boundary uh, into Iraq after those artillery raids, which we'd been listening to and watching the flash on the horizon for many days. And we, we went across with the 16th Fifth Lancers. We were all in our nuclear, biological and chemical suits. And um, I remember we were all in a long line and it started to rain. The poor, poor Iraqis, not only had they got these um, troops from northwest Germany to come and attack them, we'd also brought our weather. <laughs> One of the great um, decisions that um, the commanding officer of the 65th Lancers made was because he also understood about uh, chemical weapons. He said, take the, take the suits off unless you think they're keeping you warm. Um, we don't need them. In this weather, chemical weapons aren't going to work. So this big fear that we had that um, Saddam would launch chemical weapons against us, and let's face it, he had some previous on that, yeah. didn't materialise. But we tore across, spread out, and then struggled for the next 100 hours to keep ahead of the very, very fast Challenger tanks and these new warrior mechanised infantry vehicles, the infantry fighting vehicles. Chris, can I just take you to rewind a bit um, when we're in the assembly area waiting to go through the breach? Um, And just the sheer display of firepower. I mean, I remember being stood outside our vehicles watching uh, rockets screaming off into distance, flashes of gunfire on the horizon, artillery fire, <clears throat> the sound of fat jets going overhead and, you know, dropping ordnance. It was it was like something out of film, yeah, just that really sheer of fire. And to think what those – your heart did go out a bit to those Iraqi guys on the receiving end of it, even though you were focused on the job in hand. The, a soldier always thinks about these things. And, you know, to be under what they – they suffered would have been horrendous. Well, we'd had um, miserable uh, deserters coming across. They, some of the uh, munitions that we'd fired in the lead-up had had um, little paper, um, come come across the border, you'll be fed, watered, and you won't be harmed. And lots of people had, and we were starting to get a picture of the Iraqi soldier as a conscript who didn't want, who didn't want to be there in the first place, and was not of the quality that um, we'd been led to expect. We, we and, had, and had been under constant air attack for the previous four weeks as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, that um, the the barrage was the largest um, since the Second World War. The, uh, the the thousand gun barrage at El Alamein had previously held the record, but um, that that opening barrage that night we went across. 
um, dwarfed that in terms of the ordnance that was uh, deployed. And I remember being closed down in the vehicle uh, as we went past the gun battery that was firing from the middle of no man's land. Um, and the, the noise, the constant noise was extraordinary. Anyway, off, off we went. Um, you guys all uh, spread out along the, um, the left flank of the division and started to watch what was going on. Remember, this is only going to take 100 hours. Um, pretty much, I remember, a day and a half, two days, really, we were properly fighting. And none of us, I don't think any of us slept during that time. Uh, no, we I recall at the end of it, the commanding officer actually said, right, all officers and command ranks are to sleep because he he knew only too well the mistakes that can be made when exhausted command appointments start making poor decisions. Um, and then and he, he called a halt to the, um, the regiment's advance to give that opportunity to take place. There, had, there was a lull as we, we were deciding what was going to happen next and whether we turned north. But I, I would recall that very, very well indeed. Now, Can I just jump in as well, Chris? Sorry to interrupt. I just want to bring out another important point. Now, again, desert navigation uh, back, back in then. I mean, we were just coming into the age of the GPS at that point. And we did have a few Trimble units. I think we had one Trimble unit each. But the satellite coverage would often drop out. And even during the ground offensive, uh, with my patrol commander, Bren, at the time, it would be a case of we'd lose coverage and I'd have to get out the back of the wagon and run 50 metres in front of the wagon. Bren would have to step off to get away from the metal that affect the compass. And we were still doing bearings from a compass in order to uh, get our line of march. So that's another interesting point. We were just on the verge of that technology coming in that would enable us, but we're still relying on old-fashioned navigation techniques. Yeah, and another point worth mentioning is that the all the other troops, troop strength at least, you were out there as individuals in this long line. So you were immensely vulnerable if there had been Iraqis who really wanted to make life uh, difficult for us. I'll come on to the importance of of, of that. Yeah, the, um, the the Trimble GPS. We were that that was really quite something. But it does bring up a, a, a point that Rupert Smith had made: is normally when you when you're doing any um, military decision making exercise uh, about how to fight a battle, the first paragraph in your considerations is ground. Rupert Smith said the ground here is unimportant. It's rather like the Navy. It's just there. Because it's so flat and featureless, there weren't places to hide. It was rather like being a ship on the sea. We know there were folds in the ground. There was the Wadi, Wadi Albertine. But basically, it was, it was featureless. So um, it was another time when I was quite pleased. I had such um, a bright bunch of uh, guys working for me. Because you could you could navigate, and navigation isn't a isn't a a skill that exists um, in all ranks of the army to the extent that it existed in the battery. Everybody knew what to do when it came to a map and re and reading a map. I remember in my map coverage, I had two pieces of graph paper where there weren't any maps. Just drawn um, grid lines onto them, 
and it made no difference at all. I was quite capable of navigating off a blank piece of graph paper. It was like that scene in Blackadder when General Melchett says, it's a bleak, featureless desert out there, <laughs> and Captain Darling turns the uh, map the other way up. Yeah. It was- I-, I remember doing that distinctly, flipping a map over and drawing grid lines on it because we'd run out of mapping. Well, you think yeah. back to the Second World um, War, the LRGB and the rest of it, they used sextants. Yes. They were navigating through the desert. They didn't use just compasses. They, they were navigating as, as the seafarers would do. There was some talk when before we um, deployed of trying to get hold of some sun compasses, which were also yeah. used out yeah. in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, the uh, global positioning system um, worked up. So we we deployed along that flank. The battle was fought, and then came our um, our what I would say is if we had the finest hour, it was it was this. Um, you were all reporting uh, signals from the desert that you were detecting on your um, M Star radars, and I was plotting them in my command post. Uh, Nick Fitzgerald, our um, our redoubtable, uh, my redoubtable second in command had taken over the gun battery because the field battery commander had broken down. So that gave um, 7-3 battery command of all the fire support assets. So uh, he did that. I uh, coordinated all the air uh, attacks. Um, and Matt and Steve with our FACs, and there was a Royal Air Force um, FAC, and so I was listening to uh, Fairchild A-10 Thunderbolt aircraft shooting stuff in response to them. But I was plotting these dots on um, on my map display, and a long line of them traveling north to south started to appear. And what we had discovered was an Iraqi Republican Guard um, brigade uh, part of a division on its way south to do what um, had been suspected might happen, and that was to try and hit us in the flank because we had accelerated because we got our fuel uh, supply system. Rupert Smith realizing that tactics only work if logistics have been thought about. Our advance had been so quick we had outpaced the armored cavalry regiment to our um, left flank. They were coming up, and we had a major from the Americans in our headquarters as a liaison officer, so we wouldn't get any um, fratricide uh, blue on blue across the boundary. But they were quite a long way back, and you all discovered this um, force coming to hit us in the flank. Uh, And that was, we we reported that up through um, Tomo in our liaison party with uh, 3-2 Regiment, our parent regiment. And we coordinated with the liaison officer um, the attack of the 1st Armoured Cavalry Regiment into the flank. They outflanked that um, brigade and it was destroyed. Uh, and that, um, that made us pretty popular. Not widely reported, I have to say, but um, certainly it was appreciated by those in the know at Division. And that, for me, that um, the breaking up of that attack and then the calling of a halt, which took place the next day, pretty much was was when it all stopped. It's called the 100-hour war, 
but I, I think we would probably we would say only seventy two hours of that was that was fighting that we as a division took part. We then reconfigured with a decision to strike to the north. And I remember um, us being taken away from the sixteenth fifth Lancers to do surveillance for a couple of nights, and then peace was declared, <coughs> and we moved to a quarry. Um, in northern Kuwait, which kind of saw the end of um, saw the end of the war, but not the end of our story really, because I think we were there for I, I forget how long we were there. It did a bit of a blur for me. It was a good few weeks, I think, wasn't it? Weeks living in this quarry, um, but it was not without incident. Um, <laughs> a bunch of um, I, I well remember a bunch a saloon car pitching up in the middle of our position, our little circle. Um, and some Kuwaitis in the car poking rifles um, out at us and nearly getting themselves shot for their trouble before we uh, sent them packing. <clears throat> and um, we were we were pretty popular in the divisional artillery group, certainly at um, General Jury, who is the um, the commander of that uh, group. He had surrounded himself with commanders. He'd been my um, commanding officer when I was in one for eight battery and he had a, uh, a Royal Marine as his assistant and um, one of my friends um, was his principal staff officer his main bureaucrat uh, and uh, General Smith had made the, the artillery brigade his third brigade he had two brigades of um, combat troops and the combat support element the artillery formed the other brigade and the reconnaissance was was in that and we were we were allowed a, quite a great deal of license, really, to the extent that he had two um, Royal Engineers, um, senior non-commissioned officers, who he didn't know what to do with. So he sent them to us. And we had all this plastic explosive that you mentioned before. And um, I didn't want you to become bored, you guys. So the Royal Engineers taught us... Um, taught us what to do with this um, plastic explosive, which had the added effect that it, it couldn't go home, so it needed to be used. So we did demolitions training. We did a bit of um, shooting from time to time. Well, I remember we also got a load of artillery rounds to get rid of, so we went out and we created our own target array from abandoned uh, Iraqi vehicles and promptly called down various ammunition natures on them and could go out and find out what damage they'd caused. They wanted to um, discover what the new fuses on the uh, um, artillery rounds from the 155 guns would do if they were put on bigger um, ordnance. So the 8-inch guns fired it, and uh, it was quite spectacular. The danger areas, I recall, um, became dramatically larger when that much um, ordnance went off. The quartermaster of 3-2 Regiment also was told, and this was as we were coming to the time when we were going to be um, coming home, uh, that none of his ammunition um, could come back and they didn't want to dump it in the Arabian Gulf, nor did they want to bury it in the desert for other people to dig up and use. Um, so he said, well, your lot are all demolitions trained. I want you to get rid of all the grenades and all the anti-tank anti rockets. So for <laughs> Chris Lincoln-Jones, this represented an opportunity for very, very significant training. And so uh, I, I recall 
as as I had the qualifications to do all this, I ran a grenade range, and in peacetime, you might get one grenade in two years. We had, I think, we had seven hundred to get rid of. Yeah, I remember we that. We were getting fairly blasé about grenade throwing by the end of it. Um, fortunately, there was a bunker, and I did have su- sufficient a grip on reality to make sure that it was actually safe. So that was, and really, we we marked time then. Uh, tried to do as much training as we could, and not and not um, get too idle. Whilst we waited for the day when I remember we were all uh, strapped onto the floor of a C one thirty Hercules aircraft and flown south to get on a, I think in my case, a Dutch seven four seven to be flown back to Germany, and that it the the um. The, the war kind of ended on sort of a rather a quiet note. The only incident was the police at the airhead who um, were x-raying all our bags to prevent contraband going back, coming to me, not exactly dragging one of our lads with him and said, this soldier was trying to smuggle this back and held up a 5.56 millimeter live round. I looked at that because, of course, being a major, I'd been given officer commanding the aircraft responsibilities. They said, we want to know what you're going to do about this, sir. I said, I doubt very much whether he meant to. Not the point, sir. This is contraband. So I I remember taking this um, uh, 5.56 round and throwing it as hard as I could into the desert and and then turning back and saying, what round was that then? <laughs> and, we flew, so, and we flew home. So you mentioned at the start, Chris, that we we're just emerging from the Cold War, and you alluded to the fact that you're a bit, you know, did the battery have a future? So would it be an overstatement to say that Granby prevented the disbandment of the unit? Um, it's in, entirely down to that. If we had not gone on that operation, and I have to say, distinguish ourselves quite well. Um, because uh, one of the lads, uh, one of the officers got an MID. Yeah, yes. Well. Yeah, yeah. That was because when the he stepped up as a captain to um, to command the artillery part of the divisional um, recce, I, you know, I, I remember um, having to get all serious and, and write that up. Um, uh, very, very well deserved. Very well deserved. We The, the battery performed in an exemplary fashion. All Everybody... Everybody did. Um, but it certainly it secured our future. What we had to do when we came back was to evolve that capability into what, what was required in the, in the years to come. And we, we, we did that by reforming our selection procedure. We got a new special forces um, uh, staff sergeant who came and helped. He'd been X-148 battery, incidentally. Um, and I, I think we did a pretty good job. And I recall we we spent the time after our post-operational tour leave doing our own evolution, and we tested it on uh, next that amazing exercise where we deployed from Germany by aircraft to the UK and um, and, and did a light exercise where we did surface observation. Uh, posts, which, as we know, and will be the subject of future podcasts, I'm sure, led to 
the, this, you know, ourselves distinguishing ourselves in um, in the Balkans. You know, it all yeah, it all yeah. grew. It all grew from our survival on Operation Granby and our initiative in working as hard as we could in concert with the higher staffs to make sure there was a role for the covert static observation party. I think it's fair to say if Granby hadn't happened, uh, and options for change that came in post the Cold War finishing, the battery would have probably disbanded in Germany. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that's entirely true. That was a great summary, Chris. Thank you very much for that. So, Kev, we move along now? Yeah. So, as usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is where the guest picks a favourite book, hopefully military, a film, and a luxury item. So, Chris, over to you. What are your favourite books right, and luxury items? I, I did all military. You may know that I have a, I, I dabble in the film industry, um, but book first. Um, and it's Richard Holmes's book, um, which is the the face of battle, um, and it's the story of the psychology and what makes soldiers ticks. And the reason I've chosen that is it's um, it was the book that first got me to properly think about what it is to be a soldier and an officer, why we do things, and started me off thinking that. Uh, perhaps combat stress isn't due to a lack of moral fibre, but it's actually combat stress. And really was w- was the foundation on which my better military knowledge um, took place. Now, I was quite lucky in that I got to know um, Richard Holmes uh, because he was, uh, he was one of the people, the guest lecturer at uh, Camberley when I was uh, an instructor on the Army Junior Division of Staff College. Um, I did a battlefield tour with him, and my book is signed by him. Um, what else? Yeah, firing line. Sorry, not face of battle. Keegan's firing line. Um, Eye in the Sky is the film, but then it would be, wouldn't it? I was the military advisor on... Um, you had to drop that one. had to drop it in, yeah. yeah. So military <laughs> film. It is the most authentically dressed film since the... Uh, <laughs> wartime film. Helen's Mirren's, oh, hold on, Chris, I'll hold you to that. Helen Mirren's Berry looked a bit, well, yeah, yeah, to be fair, it did yeah. look officer-like. It wasn't shaped very well. <laughs> I deliberately <laughs> misshaped it. Um, it's, it's quite funny because Stacey, the um, the costume, um, the head of costume, when I said I'd like a bucket of very, very hot water and a bucket of cold water, please, she was completely nonplussed at what I was going to do. And she almost screamed when I put the berry into the very hot water. And then and then I said, to shape it. normally I would ask for Helen Mirren's head to put this on to shape it. She said, mm-hmm. so I said we do have it. And so she gave me this polystyrene head and I shaped the berry on that and then said uh, how, how to do it. But uh, she had done all the costumes for Bluestone 4-2 and had never seen that. All right, yeah, you can tell a lot of these military films, they never get the berries right. And and actually, the only reason that the costumes were any good is I happened to be on a Skype call with her and saw a British MTP shirt go past her with weird ranks on. And the lawyer had said that they couldn't use the actual um, badges and ranks of the intelligence corps and all the other things in it. Uh, Within two hours, I had a... um, an email from the Ministry of Defence 
to the lawyer saying, why would we not want Helen Mirren to be dressed properly in this film? We heartily approve of this film and would like it to be as good as possible. So, uh, yeah. No, so Eye in the Sky is my film. Um, and the bit of bitter kit is my peak burner. I, to, I alluded to the fact that I ended up, rather than getting all the hot, weather trips when I was in one for a battery. I was the Arctic soldier. So I went to the Falcon Island for seven months and did three Norways. <clears throat> so my peak stove, my petrol um, pressure stove, uh, which was my saviour on those very, very long advance force deployments, that'll be my luxury. But I have to say, it could be a double-edged weapon, a peak stove, because I remember I was in Norway on exercise, and it wasn't unusual to see a f- an out-of-control flaming peak stove come and fly out to <laughs> the tent. <laughs> that, that, is, that is true, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very true. Very, yeah. A little bit temperamental at times. <laughs> so my recommendation is Memoirs of an Infantry Officer by Siegfried Sassoon. And I think most people know Sassoon as a uh, war poet from the First World War. It's a fictionalised autobiography set between the period of spring 1916 and the summer of 1917. And it covers quite a few aspects of the war back then, including training and raids on enemy trenches. And the book switches from sort of unquestioning acceptance of the war to doubt about the slaughter of millions of men, which is pretty much the journey that Sassoon himself took. Uh, Not only was he a, a good poet, he was a good soldier. He was known as Mad Jack, and he was quite often would leave the trenches during the night to conduct solo raids to try and grab prisoners and intelligence. And he won the military cross for his actions in retrieving a number of wounded under intensive fire. However, in 1917, he wrote to his commanding officer at the time about the futility of the war and basically saying that those in power that had the ability to stop it weren't doing so. And unusually for the time, the army got wise to that. Instead of court-martialing them, which would have caused an outcry, they sent them to Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh to be treated for shell shock, much to the chagrin of Sassoon, who wanted a sort of a public show trial. But interestingly there, it's where he met Wilfred Owen, who most people remember as also another war poet. And actually, that relationship with Sassoon and Owen uh, Sassoon was quite instrumental in helping Owen write two of his best-known poems, Dulce Decorum Est and Anthem for Doom Youth. I'm going to squeeze another three books in here because that meeting is fictionalised in Pat Barker's trilogy, uh, The Eye in the Door. And if you bored during lockdown, all those three books in that trilogy are well worth a read. Rivers, so Ke- Rivers the, um, the doctor at um, Craig Lockhart, um, is that probably the father of treatment of combat stress? You know, I, I alluded yes. to firing line, and uh, Rivers is um, was an extraordinary man. Yeah, he was well ahead of his time. Yes. And uh, but I, I remember reading a book about him, and the treatment of all these soldiers took a, really exhausted them. It took it out took it out of them quite badly. The dealing with all these peoples and the, and, the, and the horrific experiences that they suffered. Kev, your choice this week? Yeah, it's a, a book I read many years ago. It's uh, If I Die in a Combat Zone by Tim O'Brien. And it talks about his um, his tour in Vietnam. And it was published in 1973. And his tour was 1969 to 1970. Published in 1973, just as the American involvement in the war had finished and they were exiting um, Vietnam. And obviously, it was a very unpopular war. And it takes you through his, his struggles before going into the armed forces uh, to do his year because he was drafted, 
how he was thinking about escaping up into Canada. Um, reflect on his family, his family's patriotism. Um, he didn't want to go to the war. He didn't agree with it. And then it takes you through, obviously, his boot camp in Washington State, followed by his tour and how it, it's not all blood and guts. It's not all fighting the way through. It's the, it was the fear factor. So when I read it, it was the going out every day or every couple of days on patrol, booby traps, IEDs, mines, all this sort of fear. And you can reflect some of that when we look at the Northern Ireland piece. When you went out every day, you didn't always get shot at, but there was always that chance of someone setting off a device or low-intensity booby traps. Um, quite a basic soldiering story, not not very strategic, but a, a real good feel. For, was he an officer, Kevin? No, no, he was, a soldier. Was, it? He was just a soldier. Um, but he just gave a real low-level piece from going through basic training, still not agreeing, wanting to go to the war, getting sent across, and the people he was with, some of the people that obviously were lost, and then obviously repatriation back to the United States. But it's just a, it was just more of a someone who was drafted in and forced into something they didn't agree with. He wasn't a volunteer. He wasn't you know part of this professionalised army. I think it gives you the mindset of the armed forces in in America at the time, toward in the late you know middle, early to middle seventies, when this war had been going on for a long time. A lot more draftees were coming in, and so the will to win, the will to fight, had probably gone, and the political will had also gone. But a really good read, and that book kicked off. That, that book kicked off quite a bit of literature from. Uh, oh yeah, about Vietnam. Didn't it's, it? It, it was, was one of the first, the very first one. Yeah, one of the first books to come out from from that era at, and that sort of um, viewpoint as well. Good, Chris. You mentioned earlier that you're dabbling in the film industry, and I believe you're dabbling in the book industry as well. Do you want to talk <laughs> yeah. about that a little bit? Well, after 25 years of regular service, I did 16 years in the reserve, um, but also as a consultant on concepts and operations and so the watchkeeper unmanned air system was part of what i uh, did and you will remember that very well um, i did two operational tours during my reserve service and i you know was in the defense procurement world but my reserve tasks started to become all about the management of the battle space about targeting and how you target and when i ended up in the nato headquarters integrating the naval um component into the operation against libya i really had to get to know about law of armed conflict and targeting the rules the proportionality discernment and uh, you know and restraint um and i had been i was a battle space manager for my afghanistan tour as a reservist with the three commander brigade headquarters so i kind of fell into the ethics of combat i in the sky turned up which i was asked to help with the uh, dialogue and the the actual military advice to it uh, that was very uh, successful but Gavin Hood and Guy Hibbert, Gavin Hood is the director, Guy Hibbert wrote it at the after party at the premiere, said, well, what's next? And I said, lethal autonomous weapons systems, because I'd been working with the Birmingham Conflict Resolution Group as one of their advisors on um, trying to be more restrained in the use of drone for targeting, killing, 
um, they had and they wrote a paper on what the future use of drones should be. And one of the paragraphs said lethal autonomous weapon systems, that is, to use the dreadful phrase that peaceniks use, killer robots, they're not. Um, But I said that's uh, the next thing, and they were startled. And so I described what these were. And I I eventually, as the years progressed, and I became a guest lecturer at the University of South Wales on their international governance um, program, I was um, talking about drones, warfare from a practitioner's point of view, and the law of armed conflict. So I got more and more into it. And I um, was asked to do part of a paper that the International Committee of the Red Cross took up on the use of artillery, high explosive weapons in built up areas. And again, my part of that paper, which the Red Cross adopted, is to do with what the gold standard is in how you behave when you are doing the targeting of very, very powerful weapons. And so I blended that together and I've I've been thinking that we were dealt the nuclear um, capability out of conflict and we've been playing catch up ever since on on the ethics around it. Lethal autonomous weapon systems, um, machine learning in weapons and autonomy is liable to be our next challenge. And it's my view that we need to get in ahead of um, their, their widespread use on the battlefield. So I'm writing a novel that um, ex, uh, explores some of those ethical issues when a machine that you could design with the technology that exists today does something unexpected in response to your wishes. Well, Chris, I think that might make an interesting podcast at some point. I might extend an invite to you to come back on because I think that's actually a very interesting piece. They are, they're, they're almost with us. We stand right on the cusp of, of very clever weapons. We've got some super brilliant ones, but this is a step change. So before Kev wraps up, Chris, I'd just like to extend my personal thanks for coming on. That was fantastic. I learned some stuff there that I actually didn't know despite deploying on Granby. So thank you for that. And over to Kev. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. And to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Our email address is at the bottom of the show notes if you want to get in touch with ideas or if someone can tell us what NSTAR stands for. That'd be great. <laughs> You'll find us on all the usual social media suspects, including Instagram and Facebook, YouTube. And please like, follow, share, subscribe, give us comments on those platforms. If you have downloaded us from iTunes, we really appreciate your views. Our next pod guest is uh, Lee Chapman, where we will cover the Balkans tours, both in Bosnia and Kosovo. And also a reminder to all the listeners who meet the criteria, do please join the Special Observer Association. Thanks again to Nick Beale for sponsoring the series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. And see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 